Bordy. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nan. Humphrey Hawksley's work as a BBC foreign correspondent has taken him to crises on every continent. He's been expelled from Sri Lanka, had death threats from several extreme regimes and traced Graham Greene's footsteps in Sierra Leone. His passion for borders has influenced his writing, with the Cold War and espionage prominent themes in his popular thrillers. On this episode, we talk war zones, politics, the EU, Trump, guns, Russia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the pain of accidentally tipping a well-known country music star on the streets of Nashville. Humphrey Hawksley's on the Big Travel Podcast. Tell me very quickly just about the the Liberal Club. The Liberal Club was founded in the 19th century by William Gladstone, who was the, the famous Liberal Prime Minister, and it still has Liberal traditions, so anybody can join, but I think you, you have to sign up to say that you adhere to Liberal values. But nowadays, of course, we don't know what that means, so you can have all sorts of people in here. And there was a very famous photograph taken of the then UKIP leader with his mistress in the Liberal, at the bar having a drink. So. God knows how he got in. but uh, That's yeah. liberal in a different sense, isn't that's it? Right, yeah, liberal just allow anybody yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But it still has that sort of Victorian grandeur to it, so it's a mix of stuff. Very much so, yeah. and it's been lovely walking around yeah. and uh, having a little explore and seeing these beautiful tiles, and yeah. it's very grand. And the photo... And, and the, the Portraits up there. A lot of these clubs around here, you have the portraits up there, sort of oil paintings, you don't know what the hell it is. But here you've got Paddy Ashdown, Charles Kennedy... Ming Campbell, all the former leaders are sort of up there in the portrait. So you're walking through history, but it's also very current. And they have big meetings here with, you know, the MPs and the candidates and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We're right in the middle of Whitehall, I guess, yeah. aren't we? So tell me, you started your, your foreign correspondent come author. Yes, I started as a foreign correspondent a long time ago in the, in the late 80s for the BBC. I'd actually been working abroad as a journalist in Australia and Hong Kong before that in the Philippines, but my first staff job was with the BBC in the late 80s. And my first assignment out of Bush House, which is the BBC World Service, was to Sri Lanka. So that was my first foreign assignment, my first war, and my first expulsion from a country because they didn't like what I was reporting. I think one of the things I take away from that, apart from all the war stories and that, is that at the time that I was there, the Tamil population was repressed by the government-controlled singular population. And we were sort of on their side because the soldiers were going in and massacring villages and all that sort of thing. And then over the years, which I sort of kept in touch with it because, you know, it was very fresh as your first assignment, they turned into the most brutal terrorist group in the world and they, uh, they invented the suicide vest, they, they, they were a role model for child soldiers and, and, and all that sort of dreadful stuff that you're getting out of ISIS was sort of pioneered by the Tamil Tigers. Yet, here back in Britain, when you talk to MPs and that about them, they still are back in that 1980s thing about, you know, they're a repressed population. The population might have been repressed, but the extreme elements of it punched through, got through, and became exceptionally violent. You always get the nutters that ruin it for everyone, don't you? Nutters, if something, yeah. if something starts off with a 
basically good ideology protecting the people, protecting the land, protecting their god, as it might be, and mm. their values. Yeah. You always get those nutcases that just ruin it for everyone, don't you? You do, and, and I don't know about you, Lisa, but in me, I've got shivers in my spine or hairs raising on the back of my neck now when I look at what's happening in Hong Kong. Because when you see the quite what I thought was legitimate protests uh, of wanting what they were promised as far as democratic freedom is going, but then you have people being burnt in the street and, and, and infrastructure smashed up and all that sort of stuff, you think, uh-oh, you know, what is going to happen at the end of this unless it's pulled back? You just, you'd hope in this day and age that it still wasn't happening, but actually we seem to be on the cusp in the middle, hopefully not too much at the, the beginning of a bit of a, a turning point in, in world politics, you know, with the rise of the right, you know, with... Mm all sorts of if people, things happening even over here and in Europe. Having been to, you know, these conflicts, does, does that worry you, the current climate? Well, I'm a journalist, so when I say worry, I worry as a citizen. As a journalist, you, you like a good story or a story <laughs> that makes sense. But I think more than anything, probably because it was so long since, you know, it's 30 years since I started, 30 years since the Berlin Wall came down, uh, that... The cycle has turned completely, and it's as if that whole generation has forgotten what went before it. Uh, so when you get involved in the Brexit debate in Britain, for example, uh, it's as if a whole generation of people have forgotten that the European Union was actually devised to stop war. Uh, you know, that was its primary objective, and everything else about the size of bananas is secondary to that. Then when you go out to Asia, you've got a very similar situation happening there, say, between Japan and South Korea. These two great democracies that were founded under the American umbrella, these glistening skyscrapers and all that sort of stuff that we, we know about that Far East thing, two big democracies, and you would think they would have some sort of alliance against, say, the rise of China or not to, to balance it. Or not a bit of it. Oh, the atrocities by the Japanese during the Second World War, they haven't forgotten it. And so nationalism is coming to a fore there. And we think, in, you know, we're sitting in the middle of London here where Brexit, Brexit, Brexit is all around us. But no, it's happening. That sentiment that created is happening everywhere around the world. I mean, we're not unique here. The mechanisms are unique, but it's everywhere. And the stories coming out are quite, you use the word worrying, if I wasn't a journalist, I would be worried. <laughs> but actually, you're just thinking, hey, most, something more to write about. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's something that I think makes sense. I, I don't know about, about you, but the, the whole post-9-11 war on terror thing uh, that a lot of us of my generation got did, sort of mid, it's a mid-career thing for, for that. So for the past 20 years, we've been doing the Middle East and, and all that. You looked at the, you know, what has become ISIS or Al-Qaeda and all the... Is extremist. I always thought of this thing, I thought, hold on a second, you're not even making the batteries inside your suicide vest. So how can you ever run your caliphate, you know, if you're actually having to borrow from this? You so there wasn't a serious, I mean, it was serious if you're at the end of a, you know, carb, you know car bomb or something like that. But there wasn't a sort of serious challenge to the way we live here in London. But what's happening now, there is because you've got China coming up with its model, you've got Russia sort of resurging there, and it hasn't got a name yet, this thing, whatever it is, you know, this sort of communism with capitalism, market forces, whatever it is that's coming out of that tube, somebody will come up with a name, 
you know, it'll be a song will be made about it and we'll all be singing it, you know, like blowing in the wind or something. But we don't know it yet and we're not really addressing it properly. So that worries me. That, We've you know. had uh, John Simpson on the podcast mm. and also I've done podcasts with John Simpson. And what he was saying about, like you said, not, not, you're not even making your own batteries. He was saying about the threat of Russia, has, he thinks has previously been overestimated because they didn't have the power that they pretend they do. But there's power in different ways these days, isn't there? There's power in online meddling, for example, <laughs> that you don't have to have a lot of money to do. You just have to have some very yeah. skilled people and look what's happening, you know, in the States with Trump and, you know, the potential yeah. impeachment and everything. But there's other ways of meddling, isn't there? Mm. It doesn't have to be with huge levels of violence. I think that's true. Uh, so when people talk about the Third World War, there's heaps of different wars that are coming into this, uh, you know, Third World War before the nuclear threat goes on. I think what's different is that China and Russia know what they want. So Russia doesn't want to recreate the Soviet Union, but it does want to recreate a Russian identity and empire and, if you want to call it that, zone of influence. And it doesn't want to feel threatened by the West. So that whole time from the fall of the Berlin Wall, when we were sort of expanding NATO and thinking that a whole panoply of beautiful democratic institutions would float down onto Moscow and everything would be fine, that didn't happen. And the penny is just dropping that it's not ever going to happen in you know. China the same. Talk about the Berlin Wall, it's the Tiananmen Square massacre in June 1989. And then just what, five months later, the, the wall came down. Those two things happened. China hunkered down, virtually vanished off the face of the earth for 10 or 15 years. Russia tried to get itself accommodated. It really did try, and it didn't work. You know, the, the market forces, the poverty, the ripping down of institutions without anything in their place, the oligarchs, the mafia thing, didn't work. So you have a strong man in there, Vladimir Putin, who looks at this thing and says, well, that didn't work. We're going to have to try something different. And now he's suddenly our enemy. <laughs> And the same with China, Xi Jinping, that nobody probably on the streets really knows who he is. He'll be a household name and an enemy soon. And you've suddenly created, instead of these lead al-Baghdadi and, 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 and Osama bin Laden, people like that, you're going to have Russian and, and Chinese sort of household enemies. And that worries me because that's real sort of Orwellian conflict coming out there. And a lot of this is informed as a, an author. You've written how many novels now? About ten, nine or ten. Nine yes. or ten yeah, yeah, yeah. novels. And your, yeah. your travel as a correspondent yeah. and this sort of political yeah. and world influence has, has very much influenced your novels. Mm. I'm going to talk about you personally and your travels. So your very first assignment abroad was in Sri Lanka, and you said you got expelled for the country. But that was your first expulsion from the country. Expulsion. I've never been expelled from any country. <laughs> you as far nice as I, to be yeah, expelled. I do. I look yeah. too nice. Yeah, I don't know. I've been up to some dodgy things, but um, you know, managed to get away with it. How, how did you get expelled? Did they did they march you out? What was going on? Well, they tried to march me out. It, it was it was quite interesting actually. They didn't renew my visa, and then I didn't leave. So it was a sort of chicken game of chicken. And they came to the hotel. I was living in a, in a hotel, and they said, we're from immigration. They called up the room. We've been told to take you to the airport to get you out. And I went down, and they were quite sort of humble and polite and apologetic that this is... And I said, I said, there's a problem. I said, I've got to have dinner with the Indian High Commissioner tonight. And then tomorrow there's lunch with the British High Commissioner. I, I just wondered if we could postpone it a bit, and then huddled away... <laughs> And then they came back and they said, 
all right, you can stay for two more days, and then we'll... And I said, but there's a problem with the flights. I said, don't worry about that, we'll get you onto a flight. And then I left, so there wasn't... I mean, during that period of time, there, there were lots of death threats and, and stuff like that, but this was sort of the one arm of the government that wanted to open up, and the other arm wanted... And it was actually, I think, when that... When the person, the minister that wanted me in there, or wanted the BBC in there, went on leave or something, or was in another country, the other guy stepped in and, and, and got me thrown out. Do, did you yeah. have death threats to you, personally? Yes, you'd get into, you had answer machines in those days, and get into the hotel room, and, you know, we will burn you at the whatever and all that sort of stuff. It was quite nice living in a hotel as opposed to... So you go, you go back to the hotel at night after a hard day's yeah, work yeah. and you've got voicemails saying we will burn yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, we will burn you and, and we will do that or you don't... And some of those you really don't understand our <laughs> problem, you know, because any, any of these lashing out cultures, you know, around the world lash out because they think they're under threat. So they say, you know, we are going to be pushed into the sea by the Tamil people. The little singular people will be destroyed. You don't understand our story. But the funniest one that I had, it wasn't funny at the time, was in the Philippines. And I walked into the office. We had an office in the Manila Hotel. And I had an office assistant who was completely stone-faced. And, uh, and the phone was ringing. So I picked up the phone. And I thought, why the hell aren't you answering the phone? Picked it up. And this thing says... The moment you step outside the hotel, you will be dead. And I thought, oh, and you weren't usually getting death threats in the Philippines. I put it down. Another phone rang. A similar message came in. And then the assistant gave me the newspapers. And the BBC had been accused of paying the communist insurgent New People's Army to blow up an armoured personnel carrier of special forces troops, killing them all. And these special forces troops are not people to be messed with, you know. And it turned out that there had been a raid on an MPA camp, and they had found lots of faxes of applications, all sorts of BBC programmes, you know, asking for interviews with this, that and the other. And then they had said, oh, well, you know, they must have done it, and that all, all came in. And the whole day went haywire, and two things happened that have stayed with me. One is that midway through that, I got a call from the British Embassy, and I thought, oh, thank God, they're going to sort of take me to somewhere where we're not going to get killed. And there was a very junior diplomat called and said, um, and we'd issued a denial, of course, on the papers. Junior diplomat calls and she says, is that Humphrey Hawkes? I said, yes. He said, uh, the ambassador would like to know whether the BBC stands by its story that it was not responsible for murdering these soldiers. And I said, what? <laughs> so, I, said, so I don't think you know how the BBC works, yeah. if you're thinking they're <laughs> off murdering soldiers. Yeah, you know, we don't... She puts the, I put the phone down on it. Next, the American embassy calls. And it was a press officer who I just had a little row with over something. And she says, Humphrey, I just want you to know that as soon as you need sanctuary, you can jump over our wall. We'll put the stakes on the barbecue. And I've told the Marine guards that you could be coming. I thought, oh, that's a difference. And then I saw her. I said, why is your policy so different to the British policy? She said, Humphrey, you've got to realize that in, in Britain, their job is to protect the national interest. In the United States, our job primarily is to protect American citizens. And that's why I knew I had to give you the call. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. But you're not an American citizen. Exactly. But we were close by. And I think, no, there was an American within that office thing that could have got blown up, I think. So, <laughs> so uh, have you, I mean, you're talking quite casually, obviously, in retrospect mm. about, you know, the, the death threats and the, and the danger. Did, did you feel, uh, have there been times when you've actually felt in danger of your life? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, the, 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 the death threats or the sort of dangerous situation is something that sort of simmers around, you know, and you wake up and you think, oh, my God, I'm still in this situation. You have to keep your antenna out, you know, if you're in Iraq or, or something, you know, that during that period or, or up in Jaffa in northern Sri Lanka, that sort of thing. But then when it's actually... You can be in a quite a sort of what you think, oh, everything's okay, and then a bomb will go off or a mortar will land, and suddenly it's not okay, and then it suddenly gets okay again for several hours. So it's a, it's a, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, you're never sort of, or I'm never sort of absolutely sort of petra. I've never been in a place where somebody, I think, is actually trying to sort of pin me down and shoot me, or an assassin's coming into the room and they're going to get you, like in the movies. Does it feel quite <laughs> surreal? I'm, and I'm only relating, I mean, obviously I do interview a lot of people that have, you know, mm. done this thing. I've interviewed SAS soldiers and then we've got, uh, you know, John Simpson, of course. Mm. But I'm thinking of my nan in this instance, and I remember that she was giving birth in the, in the middle of an air raid, and there were bombs dropping all around, and she, she's giving birth. And I was like, nan, were you not scared? And she's like, well, it's just what happened. You just take it as it was. And people seem to, when they're in the middle of these like, quite, you know, quite difficult situations, they actually just seem to take it in their stride sometimes because you've got nothing, you've got nothing else to do. so much you can... You sort of... What do you do? Just live under a table? It's, uh, in, in Jaffna, my first trip up Jaffna in Sri Lanka, there was a hotel, and one side overlooked the fort where the soldiers were, and the other side overlooked the lagoon. The side that overlooked Ford had air conditioning, and the one overlooking the lagoon didn't. On the first night I did the lo- couldn't sleep a wink. Next I said, oh, well, sod it, I'll go into that one. I mean, you know, they're not really going to... They know I'm here. I don't think they're going to murder me. And they did actually shoot a room during the day when they knew I was out, I think, just to send a message. But during the night it was OK. So you spent time mm. in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Tell me, what was that experience like? Well, it was uh, it's more of the same, I guess. Uh, <laughs> more shootings, more bombings, yeah, more I mean, reporting. It, I, I think... I don't know what my colleagues say, you probably know, but is that I think I got a sense after a time, after many years, is what exactly are these people trying to achieve? The number of times that you go in and there's been a car bombing, you go to the victim and it's dreadful, you know, they've lost a child or they've lost a leg or something like that and they say, well, I can never forgive the person that did this and, and you think, okay, well, why doesn't the society think of a better way through? I know it's an idealistic thing to do but eventually, although the story, you know, as a journalist's story is good, is you think, am I learning anything new from this? really about humanity apart from going backwards and Syria which I didn't do in in, in there because and you see it happening again and again and we were talking a little early about that panoply of stuff coming down from heaven in Moscow and you think this cry from the West Assad must go Assad and then what Nobody put that in place, did they? Yeah, and then what? I mean, Gaddafi went, and look what happened. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out, well, actually, he was pretty hideous, but some of the things he was doing was keeping the country together. Keeping together, and the literacy rates were high, and roads were built, but, and, you know, look at it now. So, yeah. Am I, I'm, so, and that's is, good. It's good that you're quit. I was yeah. going to, that was going to be my question. It makes you question humanity, and are we going in the right direction? But what my question was going to be, and I think you've just answered it, is questioning our motives, the West's motives, uh-huh. the, the West's reactions, I think. You know, you can understand how people get pissed off with us sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the one where, you know, I think I have periods where the penny drops in my thing. So there was, a, we were out in Sierra Leone. 
and I was actually traipsing through Graham Greene, the author's trip in the 30s between Sierra Leone and Liberia, and I was following it to see what had changed, what happened. But we were doing stuff for the news and all the rest of it. And there was a civil war there, and Britain intervened in the civil war, and then it brought democracy to Sierra Leone. The reason the civil war started was because there was a town called Kailuhun, which was up on the Liberian border, and Freetown, which was the capital, about 300 miles apart. No roads, no railways, no air links between them. So the people in Kailuhun felt completely cut off from their government, and their Liberians were feeding them with drugs and weapons and what, so they came in and nearly took it. I went back there 10 years later to just see what was happening part of this trip. A road between those two places hadn't been built, still. So medical trucks couldn't get through, and it was no more than a foot. You know, we're looking down a sort of narrow table here. I can tell you the track was not much wider than that. Uh, so people were dying up there. And then the, the beginning. I come back to it, and I call up various people. I said, why hasn't this road been built? Oh, uh, well, the World Bank was meant to do it, but the Germans said this. Oh, uh, well, the Germans said, told me Diffid was meant to do it, but then so And you can even see this sort of Sri Lankan road thing going around all these things whilst people are sort of in their aid conferences and that. And I thought, and then you go to other bits of Africa, that might have changed, and the Chinese have built all the roads. And they've built the ports, and they've built the hospitals, and they've built the sports stadia. And we were in there sort of trying to get democracy or gender equality going. And the Chinese go, and then they build a bridge. <laughs> and actually, what the people want is the bridge. Yeah, far more useful, <laughs> far more useful pontificating you about your, your head around gender equality. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, all of those have their, their place. Yeah. So where have you travelled that hasn't been for war following? Oh, well, the books that I've just done, I did a book on Asia called Asian Waters. So I sort of revisited Asia. And then I did the two thrillers. And that was the two bookends of the Russian Arctic route. So there was the US-Russian border, which is in the Bering Strait. Nobody ever writes about it much because nobody ever goes there. I was going to so say, it sounds like quite a bleak place, I imagine. Bleak and wild weather, and nobody lives there. And, but this is the two superpowers coming face to face. So what happens at the border? Is there a man in a box no. and a... And a, there's know, nothing. A thing to no. No, this is what's fascinating. There's nothing it. at the border. So th there's a there's two islands, and one is a Russian military base, and the other ones are called Little Diomede and Big Diomede. Big Diomede is the Russian base, and Little Diomede is an Eskimo village of eighty people. And Eskimo is what they call themselves. I'm not being politically incorrect, because I went there and stayed with them for a time. And they're two miles apart. And when you get up in the morning there, you look across and you see Russia. This is Sarah Palin. Do you remember the vice presidential yes, candidate? Yes. She said that. Everybody said she didn't know what she was talking about. She knew what she, she was talking about. She that was about. them. And so I thought, uh, and there's nothing there. There's no markers. There's no flags on either side. There's no border post. It's a closed border. I mean, you can, you know, lots of paperwork you can get across. And that's where the two superpowers meet. And also, two superpowers who love their flags and yes. their, uh, yes. you know, love to, like, you know, plant a flag somewhere yeah. and, you know, we own this gaff. And they're, they're just letting it sort of, you know, sit in a... Is it snow? Is it snow? There? It's snowy yeah. and, uh, you know, it's sort of 24 hours darkness, 24 hours sunlight. Uh, is it because it's so awful and nobody wants to cross the border there so people just don't bother going? Um, yes and no. No, it's it, in the 1940s, I think it was 47... 
the US, the Cold War has just been, it suddenly shut it. Now, until then, the native Russians and native Americans were just crisscrossing in their boats and canoes and whatever, as if there was no border, because the Alaska Purchase, you know, when America put Alaska, and then suddenly it came down. They call it the Ice Curtain. And that has never been lifted. It sort of was eased in the early 90s when Russia went through, but now it's sort of... I'm trying to visualise what's there. A wall. No, Nothing. a sea. sea. A sea, it's, just the sea. It's, 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 when you get from the sea <laughs> to the sea, land. You have a bleak, I think if you imagine the sort of highlands of Scotland in the winter, a treeless landscape, a half sort of caked grey, green, shingle hills and pebble beaches and roaring sea that's going all over the place and settlements that are like sort of, you know, huts sort of just put put here and there and everywhere and yeah there's a sort of bleak that bleak Siberia it's not a technically Siberia fascinating thing is is that the, the name of that the province Russia is Chukotka the guy that used to be the governor of Chukotka is Roman Abramovich who's the Chelsea no owner. seriously yep seriously he was governor of he was whatever governor of whatever. this military it's a military district that bordered on Russia for many time, many years and then he was a top politician I mean he's obviously still got um, you know things there. and he poured money into it he poured money into it but if you look across straight in uh, here I can show you. I know we're on radio. But so it's man on ice. Man on ice. This is, the, this is the sort of thing that you look across it and you look through this thing and then you can see the Russian, the Russian posts, border posts there. No contact between the Americans and the Russians That's unless so you go bizarre. through the Pentagon, you know, or the State Department or something like that. That's so bizarre. And yeah. what made you want to write a book about that? Uh, basically a novel there. I, th- I just love borders. And I looked, uh, Ukraine was happening, and, uh, and there was all this sort of Cold War stuff and Crimea and that. And I thought, where can I go that sort of is this US-Russia relationship that hasn't been done and the crowds aren't there? And I opened an atlas and I thought, oh, it's got to be here. I don't think anybody's written a thriller from there before. But, uh, but I did Sounds like a perfect place for a thriller. <laughs> And we got Dark, some good, good, good coverage out of it as well. We we did the we did some BBC films and you know from our own correspondent that that sort of thing, and and it was great. So the next one of the follow up book I did for that I did the NATO Russian border or the Norway Russian border, which was up in the Arctic, which is a place called Kirkenes, and that was. Um, I mean, that was easy to do. I mean, you just get on a flight and go up there, but God, it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> I could have, that's one thing I could probably have predicted. <laughs> yeah. You've got it with cold, they say it's all about the right clothes, isn't it? But I do not have the right clothes I for that. Don't, so I don't even want the right clothes. They say situation. it's about the right clothes, but no, cold is cold. Cold and, is cold, and, and yeah, yeah. You know, and you take your glove off and you touch a piece of metal and your skin sticks to the metal. That's cold. I mean, you know. I you, saw in the news in the, the last week someone shared it on Facebook or something, but in a certain parts of Canada, it's so cold that people have hair freezing competitions and they go into a hot spring and then they, you know, so the body keeps warm but then they they spike their hair up into these amazing icicle creations that it just freezes within seconds. So you put it up and walk out. You put it and it just looks like a big icicle depending on what um, you want to do with it. You could could have done something like that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so surprised about the borders because you think Trump said not so long ago that he wanted to build a wall in Colorado. <laughs> Do you remember? Oh, yes. And everyone's like, it's nowhere near the Mexico border. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> 
there, there is a plan to, to um, build a tunnel, a tunnel or a bridge from Alaska, from Russia, across those two islands in there. And it was first invented, first put forward by Tsar Nicholas before he got chopped. And then Putin reinvented it in 2011. And I was talking to the Russian ambassador here at one of the things. I said, what's happened to that tunnel bridge you were going to build? He says, well, we were going to do it. He says, but we can't now because all the engineers have gone off to build the bridges in Crimea. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. It sounds like, I mean, travel, you've done a lot of travel for, for work and also the work of your own creating, you know, which are, are the novels. You've chosen to go to these places. I'm guessing that travel is something that is very important to you, a significant part of your life. Yeah, but what about Greta? Oh, yes. I, I've, I've got a, I'm, I'm doing my greeter calculations. Is yeah. she right? Well, I, mean, I think yeah. she has a great point, and I hate yeah. the way that she's been um, vilified yeah. by some members of society, the really miserable people that are going to complain that she's been driven there in a car yeah. or she's you know, flown yeah. there. And you think, well, actually, she's, spread, she's a 16-year-old spreading yeah. an incredible message. Yes. You know, you've got to spread it somehow and everyone can't do everything because you know, I I'm a, a traveler, I travel yes. a lot and I think yes. do you know consider the environmental yeah. impact. But I don't eat meat, I don't have a car, I never mm. hire a car when I go away. I always go on public transport, right. I walk yeah. everywhere. Everyone does their little bit. She's doing an amazing thing. Yeah. She started off sitting outside her school on her own, bunking off, and now she's speaking to the whole world, yeah. you know. And, and being listened to. And being listened <laughs> in, to. In a huge amount of time. So I have my greeter calculations now. And, um, Are you offsetting it, then? No, I'm not. I, I sort of thinking, is this really necessary? So there was one thing that, oh, I was at, at some reception. There was a bunch of people that were about to go to a climate change conference, I think in Addis Ababa. Anyway. I've just got back from there. I was there oh. last week. Oh, great, you great weren't place. at the climate change conference. I wasn't, no. 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 <laughs> I just went to interview someone for a day and came back, so oh, I'm, I'm terrible in I've terms of the climate there. change. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Do you know what? I, I, I hadn't, hadn't been anywhere like that at all. I've travelled extensively, yeah. but Addis Ababa was... There's just something magical about it. I stepped out the airport and I just felt something. And people have said this to me before. It's, it's high, isn't it's it? It's high, yeah. Maybe, so maybe is, I was just a little bit a little, giddy. A little thinner yeah. and purer. It's yeah. possible that yeah. I was just yeah. off my head <laughs> on lack of oxygen. It's a really special yeah. place. And unlike anywhere I've been before, I would fully recommend it. And I've had at least two people on this podcast who explorers to uh, one was the editorial director of lonely planet and he, as right. you imagine he's, yeah. he's traveled a lot mm -hmm. the other was sam who owns yellowwood adventures and goes on these wonderful adventures you know quite remote ones mm. both have said that ethiopia is their go-to favorite country and not just addis but outside in the uh, in the very very green surprisingly yeah. green surrounds and countryside anyway i digress so i would definitely recommend but, but, going but there Dervla Murphy. Derv I, do you know but what? I was going through, to. Yes. Didn't she? I was yes. reading that as a teenager. I was going to mention Dervla Murphy yeah. when you were talking about Afghanistan, because a book that I read of, as a teenager was when she cycled from Dublin to. Delhi, I think, and she went she through did, Afghanistan. Yes. I don't know this Ethiopia trip. Did she do that cycle as well? She did, and that was the first one I did. I'm not sure if I caught the one, but when I was a... But she a, was so... The books are incredible. Absolutely, uh, but I did Afghanistan as a hippie. In the, the, I did the hippie trail through that, and in those days, you could drive from Nepal through to London pretty safely, unimpeded, and through the Khyber Pass and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's just incredible how many of these sort of 
borders, as it were, or danger points have, have gone up because you couldn't do it now. You know, you can't go through Iran unless you're you can't even get... fly over, can you? Afghanistan, they, uh, when you're going to oh, um, that's right, yeah, yeah, commercial yeah, airlines, they, yeah. they avoid Afghanistan, yes. they avoid several countries yes, in, the, in uh, the region. Yeah, yeah, so there's all this stuff going on. But no, I, I will continue to, to travel, I think. You don't have to fly. No, you this can... is true. Well, you know, you say that, but then we're talking yeah. from the privileged point of view of people who travel a lot. If you're, yeah. you know, your average family who wants to go for two weeks in Spain yeah. because you're knackered and you've saved all year and yeah. you only get a small amount of time off work or to take your uh, kids out of school, yeah. you're not going to take the train to Mallorca, no, no, you know. No. And you're, you're gonna... not going to go to Cornwall? No, you're not going to go to Cornwall. Well, you might go to Cornwall, but Cornwall is just as far to get to for a lot of people yeah. than yeah. it is to, yeah. a lot cheaper to fly to. Yeah. You know, Mallorca or, or Greece <laughs> yeah. or anything, you know. Uh, I mean, there's a... What's, what's the place that you haven't been to or want to go to? Me? Oh, there's, there's so many. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was very well-travelled, and then when I had my children when they were very young, well, they're, they're a bit older now, but <laughs> I, I've moaned about this a lot and I feel terrible. We bought a house in Spain where I grew up, right. and it means that every holiday we go back to our Spanish holiday house. And we, it's a really middle-class, first-world problem that I've got a holiday house that I keep going back to. But I do love it there, and I'm finding it hard to sort of tear myself away to go to other places. Oh. But I do go to other places for work yeah um so i'm probably only on the the low 40s in terms of countries when i know that a lot of people are on a lot more uh so now for me with young children it's about experiences i'd love to take them to see the northern lights i'd love to go to the galapagos yes i want to do those sort of experiences i did the northern lights when i was doing that kirkenes up in the you they have a trip there that i did i did a piece in the mail on sunday about it is that you you go out with the dog sleds and you have eight dogs pulling you on the sled, and they do night things at the sledding. So you're going along the sled, absolutely nothing around you apart from the dogs and that. And then the northern lights break out. Oh, amazing. On, on top of you. And they actually have something right next to the Russian border. They have a hotel. I think it's called Solaya Hotel. And they have glass-roofed places so you can lie in bed and sort of wait for the northern lights to break I've out. I've seen and, pictures of them yeah. and they look amazing. I'd <laughs> yeah, like to see no. it. I haven't done that one, but I did the dog one and, and that, was, uh, that, that was great. Where's, but, where would you like to go that you haven't been? I want to walk the Pacific Crest Trail. Where is the Pacific? It I'm begins, guessing it's close to the, near the Pacific it's somewhere. Near the Pacific. It begins in, on the Mexico-US border and it ends on the US-Canada border and I would walk into the spring... So it would take about three months or four months to walk it. You're in a first world country, so it's pretty good and it's got all the stuff. I just think that would be a great thing to do. So you're, yeah. walk, you're going up through... You go up through California, California and then up Oregon, oh, I'd love uh, to do Washington that. State. Uh, I'd really love to do that There's probably trip. a state in between that I've missed out. I wanted, there's a famous train journey that you do in that direction. I think it's... Is it called the Starlight Journey? Yes, there's a, Yes, yeah. there's a lovely yeah. name to it yeah. where you come down from Seattle down to That's LA, right. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. and then you, you go right down that thing. I think I would like to... I, I think was, was t- talking before you were saying what was Iraq like and what was that like... I think that I actually want to explore the, the sort of European and, and Western democratic places because I'm getting, I don't know what it is, is that you go to India, right, and you still have the, you're still going to be treading on a beggar in the street. Yeah. And it doesn't make you feel good. No. You know, it does, it's, it's a learning curve when you're younger, but, but now, okay, there are wonderful things in India and all the rest of it. 
but you can walk the Pacific Crest Trail and you're not walking on an underclass. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot and of complicated feelings with the poverty, the poverty that you see around the world because you want to help and there's, there's so many complicated issues behind it, it and in the end it's just like actually I don't, I don't know if I can deal with that yeah, right now and I don't know if that's, it, that's yes. a good thing or yeah. a bad it's a, probably an awful thing because you really should go and you know start doing something but what can you do so yeah sometimes it's yeah. better to just avoid it whatsoever yeah, and I think it's I have a sort of view on I mean I love Africa and South Africa and places like that but there's that sort of I did that there are so many complex sort of layers of society there that we'll never understand and it's probably better if you just sort of get out of it. <laughs> and then you think of the States, you know, and I, I'm a great fan of the States and I've, you know, travelled a lot and there's so much more mm. I want to do, particularly, you know, the, the road trip or maybe the train trip the or even trip, the, the yeah. walking. The music trip. trip. All of these, yeah. yeah, all, yeah. You know, any, any way of yeah. transport, an RV yeah. trip would be amazing. But then you think of the States and you think you do understand it and then you've got the whole Trump thing and then the gun thing and you mm. think, how can... And then the healthcare thing and you think, yeah. I do understand you. We speak the same language, particularly with the people on, the, you know, mm. the coasts. But there's so many surprising things about the States as well. The lack of holiday time, you know, the fact that right, you're the land of the yeah. free, but you get a week off a year. Week it might have improved it. since the last I had, time I, I investigated a, a, that. A, a wonderful experience in the States. We were staying down on the... We were doing the music trail, so we were in Mississippi or somewhere, and staying at a holiday inn or days inn or something. And just nearby there, there had been a reenaction of the Civil War. And the people that had reenacted it were staying in the hotel. So we walk into this sort of lobby where there's a coffee machine and that's it. That's about it. And they were all sitting there, those long beards and sort of their confederacy things. Being American, you say, hi, how are you? you?" And I said something about, did you have a good enactment? And I think it was the time that ISIS was just coming up in, 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 you know, there were stories there about that and they, were, they had a sort of veteran look about it. And I said, well, what do you think about this Iraq stuff that's happening? And he says to me, well, you know, these Yankees, and I sort of not quite with it, that's what they do. They go into other people's countries and they take their women and they charge the taxes and they start wars and that's what you've got happening in Iraq. Fascinating, and, I, and, and not just, what you expected. He was talking about the South being invaded by the by the Yankee, you know, by by the North, and that they were still fighting this this war. And I said, uh, and something that sort of when I ended the conversation and said, "Have a nice day." I said, "Yeah, yeah, but that war was about, uh, you know, the, the Civil War was about slavery, wasn't it?" He said, "Yeah, but those Yankees, they do that, they." They always make, a, make an excuse, like Iraq was meant to be about democracy. Coming into our country, they talk about slavery. But actually, they just want to take our women and take our homes and raise taxes. <laughs> How fascinating. And not what you expected no. at all. And then you get, you get these sort of vignettes in America that, that have and different stories from different people. There was one in Nashville. Have you been to Nashville? I haven't been to Nashville. I'd love to. In fact, oh. Nashville might be on the cards because I was speaking to their tourism board recently. Oh, you should. Nashville. And I watched Nashville, the series, and that really, really made me want to the music, go. yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good series. I mean, Nashville's... They've got the strip in Nashville. And I was doing a, a piece for... I actually did an off-piece piece for the... Um, uh, from American Correspondent on it. And 
again, it was Iraq and ISIS. And I thought, well, if we were talking about the Vietnam War and all that, there were great music coming out of that. Oh, you know, gosh, the Doors absolutely. and the Rolling yeah. Stones and Bob Dylan and Blowing in the Wind. In terms of hardship and yeah. it always all, springs great all of culture, that stuff. music and all, art. And all of that stuff. And I was talking to the musicians. I said, well, you've, you've got some war and you've got this and that going on. Where are the, where are the songs from it? And they said, well, you know, there's not really a market for them, and, and you don't want to write for songs like that, or the FBI will be on to you, and all that sort of stuff. And then on a, on a corner, street corner, there was a guy that looked like Johnny Cash. He had this sort of lived-in face, and he was busking with a beautiful young singer. The two of them made a great thing, and they were singing a Johnny Cash song or something like that. So I went up to him, and I said, um, I said what's happened to the war song? That was what we called the piece, why not he? Says, he says, well, I'll tell you something. They're being written. There are 10,000 people in 10,000 garages writing the songs. And one day soon, one will come through. And when that song comes through, it'll touch our hearts and it will change the world. I thought, yeah, that's a good thing. He must have been 70. So I gave him a dollar, you know, and he had his tip bucket out and he finished his thing. And then I went back and turned around this huge stretch limousine <laughs> to pick him up. He was one of the most famous singers in, in the country in Western thing, and he just loved busking. <laughs> did he take the dollar? He, well, he, he took it, yeah, because he had a tip bucket out there. He might have given it to the girl, actually, that, that he, was, he was singing with. Oh, this but, brings me in a wonderful way onto... I could speak to you for so much longer, but we're running out of time, and it brings me in a very wonderful way onto my last question, because talking about you, the, the songs you were talking about the Vietnam War, they're some of my favourite songs oh, yeah. ever. And, you know, from, as we were saying, from times of trouble and it's almost like I'm about to start quoting lyrics, but, you know, great cultural things do spring, you know, these, these passions. Yeah. But my last question is always about music because I really think that music oh. and travel go very much hand in hand, good and bad travel. And I'm going to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a place, a very memorable place and time of travel, what would that song be and where were you? What was happening? I was hitchhiking as a, as a backpacker through Thailand. It would have been 1974-ish. And the guy had dropped me off in the middle of the night somewhere. We weren't in Bangkok or anywhere that I knew. And I had to walk to the nearest thing. And I walked and walked and walked. And then there was a light, like at the end of the prairie. And then I heard some music. And I thought, oh my God. And I kept walking faster and faster and faster. And I ended up in a, in, a, in a sort of bar stuff, and they gave me a bunk for the night and everything like that. And that song was Wider Shade of Pale. Oh. And I heard that Wider Shade of Pale wafting through the sort of rice paddies of Thailand at 2 o'clock in the morning when the stars were in the sky, and I was the only night this huge backpack on. And I thought, yes. And every time I hear that song, which must have been a million times since that scene comes back to me. So atmospheric. I mean, yeah. the song itself is so yeah, atmospheric. Song, I anyway, don't know what it means. Do you know what it means? I don't think it, they even they were, no, knew no, what it meant. No. No In idea. fact, I think I've looked it up before to yeah. see, you know, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. And actually, no, nobody yeah. knows. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on well, the Big Travel you. Podcast. I, like I said, I could carry on speaking to you for ages. Tell us quickly the name of the books and where we can get it. Man on Ice was the US-Russian border one. Man mm. on Edge is the Norway Husky Sledding Northern Lights one. Great. Uh, both adventures 
adventure stories like a sort of um, Born Identity, Alistair MacLean, Where Eagles Dare, that sort of thing. Uh, bookshops, Amazon. Very, uh, very good-looking books as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Humphrey, for that fascinating conversation. As you know, we love to have a great variety of guests here on the podcast. So from War Zones with Humphrey, next week we have influencer and fashion guru, Bonnie Rackett. See you then. Bye.